I'm going to begin the talk this evening with a poem. And this poem comes from the Terragata. And the Terragata is, along with the Terragata, is a wonderful collection of poems from the monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. And the Terragata is the collection of poems written by nuns and written often as enlightenment poems. There's a long tradition of writing poems as an expression of awakening. And it's quite wonderful that these poems have come down to us as in many aspects that that is the teachings, the histories of the disempowered or less prominent, such as women, are often excluded from the history. And yet this collection makes it all the way to this time. So this is a poem by by Genta, the conqueror, she's called. I was forever getting lost until one day the Buddha told me, to walk this path, you will need seven friends, mindfulness, curiosity, courage, joy, calm, stillness, and perspective. For many years, these friends and I have traveled together sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way around. There were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I was finally beaten. It's scary to give all of yourself to just one thing. What if you don't make it? Oh, my heart, you don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. So you might recognize these seven friends are the seven factors of awakening. And if it would be hard to miss at this point, we've been talking about these all the way along, these factors of awakening that support us on the path. They are our friends. And they're central to the process of awakening. It's understood that the arousing all of these, the balancing of all of these, are what set up the conditions for insight and for the unfolding of the path. This is from the Buddha. He says, just as, bhikkhus, in a peaked house, All the rafters whatsoever go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak, and of them all the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu who cultivates and makes, makes much of the seven factors of wisdom slopes to Nibbana, inclines to Nibbana, tends to Nibbana. So these factors, he states clearly, are sloping to Nibbana. They are leading us in that direction. And then there's this wonderful story that 
uh, Moggallana and Sariputra, two of the Buddha's long-term friends and uh, members of his Sangha, that they became enlightened listening to the Buddha talk about the seven factors of awakening. So I'm not the Buddha, but may it be so for you this evening. So I'll say a little bit, just a reminder about each of them. The first one is sati, mindfulness. We've been practicing this every moment that we've been emphasizing it. There's many ways that we can pay attention. This mindfulness of what's here in the present moment. This is the foundation. This is the first, this is the entry point into our path. And then the second of these in that poem, it's translated as curiosity. Sometimes we talk about it as intimacy or inquiry or investigation. Investigation, that translation of the second factor, Dhamma Vichaya, is a little problematic because it can sound a little analytical. But I'm going to talk in detail this morning about that this evening, about that second factor, Dhamma Vichaya. So let me come back to that one. And then the third is energy. So you may recall, we've talked about this, the balanced energy, the not too tight, not too loose, putting in effort. James talked about that skillful effort of putting effort in to diminish the unwholesome, to let go of that, and the wise effort of bringing in the wholesome, of encouraging the wholesome in our practice. So this is one of these seven factors of awakening, to bring in this energy. And then the next one is piti. And Temple talked in detail about this piti and how piti can have a wholesome quality and also it can get a little out of balance. And part of what's happening here in these factors is that they balance each other out. So piti by itself can start getting a little over-exuberant, a little, and it can get, literally get uncomfortable and unpleasant in the body. Ah, but if it's balanced by the next factor, tranquility, calm, that settles it. It, it gives it a quality, more space, less activation. And then the PT has a more contented feeling. And that, that quality of sukha, contentment, comes in. And then there's the, the factor of concentration, samadhi, which we've been cultivating. And we cultivate that in the, we've talked a lot about continuity, that many moments of mindfulness, one after another, put together, and you've all experienced this quality of the mind collecting, this coming together, its ability to stay, even if just for a short time. But as time goes on, you might notice it can stay where you put it with more and more clarity, with more and more ease. 
It's the trained puppy or the wild monkey coming into a uh, into this focused, alert, a kind of dignity that we have as we see what is in front of us. And then the seventh factor is equanimity, that non-reactivity that Kamala spoke about so beautifully. And this being able to stand in the midst of it, to stand in the midst of everything that's happening. You might notice as I talk about these that there's a number of different ways that this list can be understood. One is as a progression, that we start with the mindfulness and then we get interested and that brings energy to us and that brings satisfaction and pleasure. And then as we feel satisfied and uh, delight in our practice, we relax, we don't lean, we don't push so much, the concentration develops and the quality of equanimity arises in response to all this development. So that's one way of understanding this list. Another is the balancing nature of it. Sometimes it's understood that like mindfulness is the center, as if you've got a seesaw. And in the middle, middle is mindfulness. And on one side are the three arousing factors. That would be the Dhammavichaya, the energy, virya, and the piti. And then on the other side is the tranquility and the um, concentration and the equanimity. And when you get out of balance, there might be too much activation. And when you get too activated, then we try to bring in some of the calming and so on, that back and forth between these. But it's not quite really a seesaw. It's more like a big hoop with a point in the middle because they all need to be balanced. And so sometimes we can look and see what factor is not so present. And that points to one of the key ways that they're understood as a meditation instruction, as a way of interacting and cultivating the art of meditation. How does this work? How, what's a skillful way to proceed in this practice? How do I experiment and recognize somehow what I'm experimenting with in such a way as to be able to understand the process more fully? Another way of understanding it is as a process, as an instructions for life, for everything. This is the way um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, a teacher of the last century in Thailand, who was the teacher of many um, teachers in this lineage. And he talked about the seven factors as instructions for living your life in a, in a skillful and wholesome way. And the example that he would use is the example, I'll use a different one after this because there may not be many of us here that plow our fields with oxen at this point, which is his example. But he talks about when you 
plow the field with oxen, that you have to be very mindful, present with what's happening. You have to have a lot of interest and curiosity in like what the oxen are doing, how they're behaving, how, how deep the plow is going. You need to stay with all the different factors of what's happening there. And you have to have some energy. You gotta keep it moving. And you have to have some sense of satisfaction and enjoyment of the process. And you have to do it calmly, steadily, but calmly. Very focused on what you're doing. If you get distracted, it's not going to work out. And having equanimity with like how it's going and the the clods don't go out quite right or whatever it is that might be a little bit challenging for you. So he said these instructions are not just meditation. They're how we can work with the things in our life. So for instance, you decide you want to go for a walk up the hill here. And you're going to go for a mindful walk. That's nice, you're paying attention, you're feeling your feet, and the factors are coming together. There's energy that's bringing you up the hill, you're walking, there's a joy in the sky and what you're doing, there's some calm, maybe there's no time pressure, you're just going along, you're focused, because it, especially coming down, you could slip on the rocks, so there's a focus there. And perhaps there's some element of equanimity about the, the challenges. Maybe if you go through the woods, you know, watching out for the poison oak or noticing that some places there's a challenge, but it's okay. So all of that is useful. And now you have a very mindful walk. But there's one more factor, this Dhamma Vichaya. And what that points to is the question of, What is the orientation of the walk? Are you going on the walk to get exercise? Are you going to relieve your cramped legs from too much sitting? Or just to enjoy yourself and have some relief? Now these could all be good reasons. But or are you going on the walk to wake up, to see the Dhamma? In that case, then you need to bring in also the factor of Dhamma Vichaya. It's a way of looking at your experience. It's the lens through which you're seeing what's happening. Dhamma Vichaya is sometimes viewed as like the flashlight that's revealing what's here in such a way as dispel ignorance. It's like a bird is all these other factors come in and the bird is soaring through the sky. But what does it see as it soars? The Buddha defines this Dhamma Vichaya as searching, investigating, scrutinizing for insight into one's own personal conditions and into external conditions. So the key aspect here is this discrimination, looking carefully, bringing in the, this real quality of curiosity. And this is from the Buddha. He says, Dhamma is taught by me, bhikkhus, by way of discrimination, 
The four foundations of mindfulness are taught by way of discrimination. The five faculties are taught by way of discrimination. The seven factors of awakening are taught by way of discrimination. The noble eightfold path, same. Thus Dhamma is taught by me by way of discrimination. So this learning to see very carefully through the Dhamma, eyes of the Dhamma, what is here. And he lists in this some of the different ways that we might be looking at what's happening. And when we look in this way, there's something more than mindfulness that's happening. We are having, we're looking towards this, there's a phrase, Yoniso Manasakara. And it's a lovely phrase. It means seeing things clearly with wise attention. Seeing things as they are. Right here. And the Buddha said, you've probably heard it, there's a story about the Kalamas, a group of people that the Buddha went and talked to. And and they had some doubts and questions about the Dhamma. And the Buddha said, Right it is to doubt. Right it is to question what is doubtful and what is not clear. In the doubtful matter wavering, in in a doubtful matter wavering does arise. But then he says, don't stop there. Don't stop with doubt. Look for yourself. Look carefully. Dhamma eip apasako. Come and see for yourself. This is the point of practice, to see through our illusions, to see through the ignorance, and dropping our ideas of what things should be, and start to see what's here. How do we get closer to the truth? Breaking down our pre-existing ideas. Here's Mary Oliver on a poem called Breakage. I go down to the edge of the sea, how everything shines in the morning light, the cusp of the whelk, the broken cupboard of the clam, the opened blue mussels, moon snails, pale pink and barnacle scarred, and nothing at all, whole or shut, but tattered, split, dropped by the gulls onto the gray rocks and all the moisture gone. It's like a schoolhouse of little words. First you figure out what each one means by itself. The jingle, the periwinkle, the scallop full of moonlight. Then you begin slowly to read the whole story. So dhammas, in this word dhamma vichaya, dhammas are components, elements of the world. And there's endless dhammas. And vichaya, this word of discrimination, looking carefully. So which dhammas should we look at in order to move in this direction? Which ones is the Buddha pointing us to? And he wants us to look at the ones that will increase the skillfulness, the wholesome, and free us from clinging. Makes sense. So there's two approaches of how we can uh, look at this, this elicit 
and work into this lens of the Dhamma Vichayas. One is to look closely at what's here, moment by moment, and the other is to bring up a particular lens through which we're going to look. And both of these tend to lead in the same direction. So let me describe first a little bit this idea of just connecting very precisely with what's arising in the moment. And this takes, so first there's like curiosity about something. So here's an example that I can remember on retreat. I noticed as my continuity would get clearer and clearer and I'd sit and walk and move from my sitting to my walking and down to the dining hall and I'd stand in line and I'd be very present, present, present. And then I'd get to the end of the, the food line and get a fork and realize I completely missed what happened as I walked through the food line. What happens when I'm getting the food that I cannot be present for? I noticed I disappeared. Do you, do you, have you noticed that there's times where you just disappear in your day? Maybe you too have a little event there at the food line, but maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's right now. Are you losing track of your mindfulness right now? Not quite present? So I started trying to watch that that food line thing. And um, I had to start going at the very end of the line because as I was watching, of course, I got slower and slower, which you have to be a little careful in the food line. You don't want to go too slow. And so I would start watching and... Oh my goodness, I could start to see all this confusion would come up. How much should I take? How hungry am I? Oh, I really like this. Should I take that much of this? But wait, there's these different things. What if I like this one and not that one? Can I just take this one but not that one? And there was this whole cacophony going on. And when I looked more closely, I could see there was basic confusion, which is another word for delusion, and there was greed. There were these two things. So I was having a little delusion greed attack in my mind that cut out my ability to really be present. So then once I started to notice that, oh, this is what's happening. Okay. And I could watch and be with the greed and with the confusion. And then I could start to see, oh, where else does this show up? A little bit more subtle perhaps in other places, but I recognize it. I can feel it in my body. Oh, I can recognize the story, all the stories that start popping up. Oh, I can feel my history with my mom and the way she related to food. And so much could unfold from that, from that careful looking. Kamala was talking this morning about another way of looking, of noticing specifically the arising of a particular factor like calm or the concentration or the equanimity. Noticing that when it arises and bringing the quality of Dhammavichaya, that curiosity to that mind state as it arises. James was 
inviting us with the same thing, with the wholesome states. What does this state feel like in the body? It's calm, but what is calm? If we're not careful, as Kamala was saying, we can just skip over it and think nothing's happening. But what is calm? How do I know that? Do I feel it in my whole body, in just parts of my body? Is it in my thinking as well? Is there kind of a nervous system energy change? Do What else is associated with it? Do the thoughts or the thought patterns change? Does my relationship with the thoughts change? What's happening in this mind state that's arising? And then how does it change? If I pay attention to it, what else is here? What, what comes in perhaps and disturbs it? And when I'm in this state, this particular mind state, how do I see things? Have you noticed when you're in a mind state of metta, how things look different? I'm always amazed that when, when metta's arising, there's, um, there's this different view of the world. It's so amazing. We haven't had much rain, but I'm always... Uh, Notice how when the uh, rains come and there's this feeling of metta in me or and I see it in, in yogis, oh, the slugs, they're so beautiful and they have to be carefully moved out of the road. Oh, and the worms too. That's definitely a mind state that is helping you see the worms in a different way. So appreciating, oh, this mind state is having this way of affecting how I'm interacting with the world. This is John Moffat saying his poem, To Look at Anything. To look at anything, if you would know that thing, you must look at it long. To look at this green and say, I have seen spring in these woods, will not do. You must be the thing you see. You must be the dark snakes of stems and ferny plumes of leaves. You must enter in to the small silences between the leaves. You must take your time and touch the very peace they issue from. I really like that line, to look at this green and say, I have seen spring in these woods, will not do. You must be the thing you see. To connect with this much detail, this much curiosity. Another approach for bringing in this quality of Dhammavichaya is to look at it through a particular lens. And you've all done this. One lens that we can look at what's happening is through the three characteristics they're often called, the three ways of seeing. So you look at it through the eyes of the Four Noble Truths. Is there dukkha in this moment? What is the source of dukkha? What am I clinging to? What's causing the dukkha? 
When I notice it, does it change? So it's always, so that's bringing in this quality of curiosity. It's always a useful question. And it brings in the instructions of the Buddha. Is there suffering here? Am I free of suffering in this moment? Just to explore that moment after moment and the whole Dharma will unfold. To know when you're suffering and to see and investigate in this curiosity, what's the clinging? How does that feel in my body? How does it change? What am I attached to? I remember uh, a time sitting in the hall where I, I was generally pretty good. I would stay on the breath, stay on the breath. And yet I was at this moment where something was really bothering me and I could just feel this like this suffering state in my body. It was so uncomfortable. I didn't want to feel it. And I went into a whole fantasy world. And my fantasy world was one of planning. I planned my whole landscape. I am an architect, so that was easy place to go. And I did a whole elaborate thing. I spent the entire afternoon doing it. And I remember sort of going, okay, something's going on. I don't know what's going on, but I can feel like I, I can't overcome it in this moment. So I just kept watching this pre- preference of the, of the uh, fantasy. And you can remember Beth saying that moment she realized she had to give up the, the fantasizing. And I felt it, I felt it, I went to bed tired. And then the next morning I came into the hall and I was like, okay, I'm ready. I don't know what this very intense suffering is, but I'm ready now to really be with it. I know there's something here. And then proceeded to unfold this whole uh, intense experience of my mother and my grandmother and my lineage and the suffering coming down through time. And it was really big. But it took me time. It takes courage. But we can watch the whole process leading up to it as well. This is that place that came up that to turn and even face a hindrance with the Dhamma-Vichaya attitude. At some point, the curiosity is stronger than the desire to avoid our suffering. And that is a beautiful moment. We can also bring the, added, bring the lens of impermanence. This is a very important lens to bring to our moment-to-moment experience. We do this on a, very, on a large level. We notice things change. Sometimes it's really helpful as we practice when we have difficult mind states, when things, the hindrances come, and we start recognizing that, oh, this won't be here for forever. And that's because we are noticing the changing conditions. But 
this Dhamma Vichaya can take us closer, very intimately watching the arising and the moment of presence and the passing away of an object in our attention. It might be sounds. It might be sensations in the body, watching them arise, be here, and pass away. And what's happening here is the lens, the looking at it through impermanence, is um, helping us see it through and gain Dhamma wisdom. So we're not just experiencing the sensations, the changing sensation or the changing sound, we're looking at it and consciously seeing how it's changing. We're bringing that perspective to it. Sometimes sitting outside, or I can remember, uh, maybe we'll be blessed with rain at some point, and rain is a phenomenal set of sounds to listen to, or sit by a creek and just listen to that amazing change. You could just listen to the sound, but if you put this attention on how it changes, now something else is occurring. This cultivation of a factor of wisdom, of an insight. So another one, right, is the cultivation, looking through the lens, of identification, of sakyadidi, self-view. Seeing how, moment by moment, we create a sense of self and how we release it. The sense of self is created in many ways. We, we might create it by telling a story or being in opposition to something, having a belief, being right, feeling we've been wrong. All these different ways where we create a me in conversation or usually opposition to the world. And we can feel that solidifying, that moment to moment, I have arrived, I am here, me. And then if you pay attention, it kind of will soften again. And then our opinion about something will happen again. All of these beliefs and ideas that we have, these are many, these are, we can see, oh, this should be this way. And in that belief, the sense of I is created. Here's a little short excerpt from a poem by Rosemary Watula Tromer. The pencil, it turns out, has never contained lead. It all, it has always been graphite, a form of solid carbon. How much of what we think we know is just a mistaken story passed on for centuries? And this is an opportunity when we start to look at these beliefs. This is where we get to address implicit biases, um, ideas we have about ourselves and other people. I remember uh, not so long ago seeing um, a woman getting onto a commercial 
flight and seeing a woman pilot, and there aren't that many of them. And it, I was very, very curious. I was watching my mind. What was it doing? Did it like this because there aren't many, so there was one? Did it, like, the idea comes in that, oh, she's probably better than the men because women have to be so much better than men to get into the positions like that where men are. Or then there was like, but maybe there was some reason she got there that wasn't. And it was like just looking at all the story. None of it was right or, you know, it was just, wow, look at me telling all this story. Being willing to notice it. And what we're doing in this is trying to break down the shortcuts that our mind has developed. That we just go, we just start at the beginning of the food line and end at the end of the food line and we don't notice what happens. Or we just develop an opinion about somebody because we have seen somebody that looked vaguely, vaguely like them in the past. And the breaking down of that. To be willing to be curious over being comfortable. This is from Rosemary Watola Trumer, a poem I really like, called As the Broken Do. May I be wrong. May I come to you without my books, without my rules, without my shoulds. Let me always arrive at your door with empty hands. Let me meet you with my pockets full of blank, not convinced of anything except the possibility of everything. Let me be wrong. Let me not label anyone a liar. Let me bottom out. What is it in us that wants to be right? I have seen it turn a whole month, a whole life to ice. I have felt the chains of certainty. I have worn the shackles of listen to me. Let me be wrong. Let there be chinks in my belief. Let there be splinters in my conviction. Look how alone it is in this hour when I am so perfectly right. May my rules go begging. May my imperatives learn to crawl. May my righteousness hold an empty bowl. May my musts all redden to rust, and may I be wrong as the wrongers are wrong, and may I unknow and unlearn and unselve and love as the lovers love. This invitation not to know and to prefer curiosity and the unknown We can get so caught so easily. I'm, a, I'm one of those people who can eat gluten. And sometimes I can remember going down here on retreat years ago and there, there was a, um, there was home-baked cookies, glutenous home-baked cookies. And then there were some really dry <laughs> gluten-free cookies out of some box over on the side. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm fine. I can eat a dry 
<laughs> piece of cardboard. <laughs> and then I'd be like, no, I want a real cookie. No, 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 you're a good yogi. Equanimity, you're fine. It's nice they put out cookies. No, I want a cookie. And I just, I could just watch my mind go on and on. And in this case, I was creating a whole me in a relationship to a baked cookie that didn't exist. You know, <laughs> I mean, a whole story, a whole me, and how I should be and how I was. The sense of self was completely appearing. And I could feel the suffering in it. And I watched the whole thing. And then I watched as I didn't take a cardboard cookie and walked away. And I was like, and then just watching it all dissolve. Just the ephemeral thoughts just disappearing. Gone. Nothing there anymore. And there was freedom. So looking through these different lenses, that being the one of watching the self, all of the Satipatthana Sutta is full, is a set of instructions of different lenses, different ways of investigating the Dhamma Vichaya. So we investigate and look carefully at the breath as temple laid out in, in detail. The sensing the body and being with that and seeing what we discover, how it's connected to our thoughts, how our body responds to the environment. Have you noticed how your body responds to the bell? It's very distinct. What? Watch it happen. And then you might have moments when your sit is so settled and the factors are so balanced that the bell rings and it's just sound and nothing in particular happens. And you might notice that. Oh, that's interesting. Another one of in the Satipatthana that we haven't talked about in detail yet is Vedana the pleasant and unpleasant and neutral aspects of experience. And we can, sometimes this is a very, we'll end up here. If we get curious, we'll notice, oh, I've gone off into fantasizing because there was moments of unpleasant. My knee hurt, my back hurt, or somebody next to me did something I didn't like. And, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant, Thought goes off, exit ramp, off into who knows where. So being sensitive to that. Oh, something pleasant came up. And then I just went into this warm, gushy fantasy world that I really like. So, but we can start to notice. Oh, pleasant, pleasant. Okay. Nothing needs to happen. Unpleasant, unpleasant. Oh, something happened. And we can orient our practice. It's a really wonderful practice. And in a couple of days, we'll, we'll give actual instructions of watching pleasant and unpleasant as a practice. And this is a form of looking through a particular lens, a Dhamma way of Dhamma Vijaya. 
And we've already talked about the different mind states, the third, the third foundation of mindfulness, looking at those carefully. And then also the five hindrances and the seven factors. Another way that we can bring this quality of Dhamma Vichaya to our practice is looking at intention. Intention is very interesting. We might um, notice that for us to stand up, for you to move a hand, something had to happen before that movement took place. What is that? How does that little intention, what is that arising? And you might notice it as a thought comes up. I'm going to move my hand. But then a lot of thoughts come up that you don't move your hand. Oh, I want to get up and go away, but you don't. So what makes the difference? I remember, uh, well, uh, first, uh, maybe I'll say a little bit more about that, is one of the things that we notice with, if we start tracking intention, that we work a lot on automatic pilot, that a lot of the intention just happens. It happens and we move directly into the movement. And that's like when I was making the comment about what happens with the bell. And earlier I gave a... uh, We played with that a little. When the bell rings, do you automatically move just out of habit? Do you stand up? Or can you track the decision, the process of intending to move? And we tend to, we have a lot of shortcuts. Our mind creates shortcuts in order to help us go through the world. And we prefer these shortcuts because they're familiar and they're easy. But they don't necessarily give us as much choice about choosing between skillful and unskillful, between wholesome and unwholesome. So if we start to see the moment of intention, we can see, oh, I'm moving towards something that's skillful. Oh, I'm moving towards something that's unskillful. I have a choice here. By slowing down and seeing this moment, we have an opportunity. I remember on a retreat, playing with standing by a door and watching and seeing if I would open the door. So like I would find I'd walk to my room and I was thinking I would lay down. And then I'd get to the door and I'd watch and wait to see if I would open the door or not. And I was fascinated. I know it doesn't sound very fascinating, but try it. Stand by the door and watch and see what causes you to open the door. And notice if you're tracking, tracking, tracking. And notice if you open the door in a moment of conscious 
passively watching it happen? Or do you open the door at the moment when there's a break in your mindfulness and you go into habit? Do you open the door because there's something behind the door you really want? What's happening there? In order to do this, if nothing else, you'll cultivate a lot of patience and calm and equanimity standing there by the door. And now if you see somebody standing by their door as if they can't go in, you'll know what's happening. (laughs) So all of these different factors, all, I'm sorry, all of these different aspects or ways of looking, this Dhamma Vichaya, all of them have to be balanced within the other factors. So, but this one is the one that points it towards insight, that helps us really cultivate deep understanding. The energy that it brings in energy to our practice, it, energy naturally arises from this interest. The energy leads to piti. We we get delight from seeing things clearly. And so on through the factors. Now I do want to say that Dhamma Vichaya, if it goes down into Dhammas that aren't so uh, skillful as the ones I'm listing, we can get sidetracked. So for instance, if the Dhamma Vichaya is culti- is uh, active with us like too much energy we might find ourselves pouncing on things like sort of you know like oh got that you know like oh there's greed oh there you know you can just sort of like if there's too much grabbing after it that's like the dhamma vichaya and the energy have gotten together and sort of dominated and we need a little more calm and equanimity in the process another thing is that uh, Temple mentioned the unbalanced PT. If we move, take our Dhamma Vichaya, this real investigation, and turn it towards some quality of PT, we may find that it's not so useful. We're not now looking at it so much through a uh, one of the Dhamma lenses. We're just getting seduced. I spent one retreat getting very seduced by these wonderful, PT-induced, swirling colors in my body. And I just thought, oh, I should. this is so useful, I'm sure. I'll just stay with all this swirling color in my body. And I just, and one of the ways now I know is that if you have this sense of like, Oh, if you do this and you just stay with it, something will happen. Something will happen. There's like this feeling of, I'm about to have a big experience. I'm about to get somewhere. That's a good signal you're not going anywhere. (laughs) Give it up. Come back to the basics. Lean back. Let it go. And bring in more balance. And... uh, 
uh, bring in one of these lenses of seeing perhaps the sense of self and wanting arising, watching greed come in. See how you can shift the lens. So you can come back and see these balancing factors. Use what's happening. If you're tired, if you're fatigued, Dhamma Vichaya is one of your best friends to be interested even in sleepiness. I know some of you have reported this and said you had brought in interest to sleepiness and then there'd be alertness. It's quite magical. Can you be can you pay attention all the way to the moment where you fall asleep? Temple had that great example of of his paying attention as his posture changed, and then being more and more curious. So this is our practice unfolding, and I, this balance. And I want to read you another poem from the, this collection. Really bringing in that we have this curiosity, but it's balanced with calm, with with uh, energy, with attention, moment by moment. This is from Upasama, calm. How do you cross the flood? You cross the calmly, you cross calmly, one step at a time, feeling for stones. That feeling for stones feels to me like the Dhammathichaya, but calmly. You cross calmly, one step at a time, feeling for stones. How do you cross the flood, my heart? You cross calmly, one step at a time, or not at all. These are our seven friends on the path. They can support us, lead us onward, and are always there if we turn and look, arouse them, make friends with them, get to know them. I'll end with a reading from Ajahn Chah as he talks about this. If there is sati, awareness, there will be dhamma vichaya as a result. These are factors of awakening. If we have recollection, then we won't simply take it easy. There will also be inquiry into Dhamma. These things become factors for realizing the Dhamma. If we have reached this stage, then our practice will know neither day or night. It will continue on regardless of the time of day. There will be nothing to taint the practice. Or if there is, we will immediately know it. Let there be Dhamma Vichaya within our minds constantly, looking into the Dhamma. If our practice has entered the flow, the mind will tend to be like this. It won't go off after other things. So resolve yourselves. It's not just by sitting with your eyes closed that you develop wisdom. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind are constantly with us. So be constantly alert. Study constantly. Seeing trees or animals can all be occasions for study. Bring it all inwards. If some sensation makes impact on the heart, 
Witness it clearly for yourself. Don't simply disregard it. See clearly within your own heart. Let's let the word settle for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.